friends. I'm so glad you're listening to the very first episode of I Go to Therapy. We record this podcast on Treaty 13 land, which is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. To learn more about the land we occupy, please visit our show notes. Camille Inson, she, her, is an award-winning writer, multidisciplinary performance and media artist, and alt-folk musician, currently based out of Toronto. Her critically acclaimed work as a playwright has been produced across Canada. Camille is a current PhD student at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, where her research engages with queer technology studies and digital intimacy. She can be found everywhere on the internet at CamilleInson.com or at CamilleInson. We are back with the wonderful, incredible, amazing Camille Inson. How are Hello. you, Camille? I'm good. Those are three very kind adjectives. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. So I already spoke a little bit about you beforehand, but before we get into the nitty gritty of it, the maybe depressing, maybe uplifting, creative, wonderful things, what's your favorite piece of art that you've interacted with recently? Like book, movie, storied, song, drawing, like literally anything, tweet. Tweet. (laughs) We're truly living in apocalyptic times. So there are a couple of very good tweets I've been interacting with, but um, Twitter gets funnier as the world gets darker. But uh, the two things that I, that that have really sort of influenced me lately are, um, I just read Leslie Tenorio's uh, book of short stories called Monstrous, which is a wondrous collection of, of such profound imagination. Like his protagonists are, are oftentimes these like liminal, liminal subterranean beings straddling American and Filipino cultural identity. And each story is, is such a marvel, such a gift. Um, so reading that was like a very electric experience for me. And also I found a great sense of calmness and grounding in a poetry collection that you lent me, which is uh, Anique McCaskill's Murmurations, which I love. I've been reading it over and over again. So good. So many birds, so much intimacy. Shout out to Anique, my editor for my book that's coming out this shameless year. Plug, the Palm, shameless shameless promo. I can do that. <laughs> that's amazing. So let's get oh, right yeah. down into it. Let's do it. <laughs> so we went to school together. We did. We weren't in the same program, but we were in a lot of similar classes in similar groups at Western University in London, Ontario. And I sort of wanted to know what your relationship is between academia and creativity and mental health. Big question, sort of take it however you want. I'm just, I'm definitely interested in, um, because you and I really had a lot of arts related things going on in school, but you and I also sort of, won like graduation awards and things like that for grades. And I'm just with the academic pressure and the academic environment of like working on a thesis and balancing the uh, like heavy, heavy academic content with the creative work that you were doing at the same time. Um, I'm sort of wondering what your relationship is 
to academia in a creative sense and how how that um, played into your mental health while you were in school? Starting out with the big gun question. <laughs> that is like the question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of heaviness in this subject for me because it, uh, oh, this sort of, the idea of this relationship between acad- academia and creativity is like a constant strain on my like ex- external and internal worlds and, and my sense of self. So, I mean, you know, like in my, in my mind and in my way of living, my creative work has always been like the thing that has preceded everything else, my primary impulse. And and my interest in academia uh, kind of flourished as I went through my undergraduate years and realized that I loved being in in a classroom and engaging philosophically and theoretically with different ideas of the world, because I never thought I would be, you know, in academia. I never thought, you know, if you would have told me four years ago that I'd be doing a PhD, I would have laughed in your face and be like, no, I'm going to be a corporate lawyer. (laughs) We all take journeys. (laughs) We all all make decisions. Um, And so like, you know, does my creativity fundamentally come from academia or from the same place that my academic interests lie. Like, no, absolutely not. You know, my, my nurturing of, of creativity uh, far, as I said, far precedes any sort of like academic career, if you can even call it that at the stage uh, that I have. So when I was a BA student, um, when you and I were taking classes together mm. back in the day, shout out to Bentley's pre-Raphaelite class. I think that's the only one we had together. Uh, those worlds <laughs> were completely separate to me, like sort of Camille as artist and Camille as student, uh, because again, like I, I didn't come to, I didn't come to university uh, wanting to be a liberal arts major. Like I came to be in political science because for some reason that nobody around me can still understand. I was interested in politics and thought I would uh, go into law, uh, which is such a joke now. Um, but then when I was in first year, I, I, uh, I sort of continued what I did all throughout high school, which is like theater stuff. And I was acting and I started writing plays and uh, continuing with my music because I gig with my alt folk stuff a lot. Um, but when when those worlds like like academia and the creative stuff start to blend, I used to feel like a I still do feel like a profound sense of anxiety because the demands that academia has on you um, are always tied to productivity and, and also to to a certain kind of intelligence that doesn't always uh, translate to creative praxis. And uh, so I thought I I did my master's in um, in the UK at, at a school called the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, and I did it in performance practices research which is when I sort of had this idealistic idea that, oh, you know, like I have this sort of creative career that I was able to establish for myself in and before my undergrad. And I have this, these also ac- academic interests and I'm really interested in the way that they could fuse together and work together. And I'm, I got really excited sort of about uh, this, but then through doing that degree, I, I <laughs> had the profound realization that sh- should have been obvious all along is that those things uh, do not always go together <laughs> and, and just can't in some ways. Um, and for me now, like I'm, doing my PhD in information technology, which is quite a jump from what I was doing before. But it's it's so lovely because there there is a really nice degree of separation between my creative work and my academic work. I'm no longer judging my creative work by academic standards, which that right there is the death, I do feel in some ways. Uh, now, I didn't do a creative, I wasn't part of the creative writing program like you were. Um, but I did do a thesis and that was a triggering experience for me (laughs) in so many ways, in so many ways. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, for me, it's, it's finding that degree of separation, finding that line. And, and although my creative and academic interests do overlap and have overlapped and have accumulated in some really interesting work, like I'm thinking specifically about Between Space, which is a, a project I did in the summer of 2020 during the first wave. 
they don't always have to do that. And there just needs to be sort of space and breathing room and also room to fail and room to suck and room to play. If you don't definitely. have that space in your creative practice, that's a death sentence. Oh, definitely. Um, just hearing you talk about the ways in which those like in some situations, like in between space, it was sort of a natural marriage between those two worlds. But obviously in other situations, they are quite separate, these academic and creative spaces and things like that. I'm wondering what, um, sort of what the peer reception in these separate groups, schools, like has been in terms of like when there's more of that blending, when you are academically influenced in your art or when you have an artistic perspective in academia, how has peer reception been in terms of people you go to school with, people you engage academically with, and people who you create art with. How is that um, How is that dualism kind of received? That's such an interesting question. And I feel like I have to sort of preface it by saying like, I have social anxiety, so I always <laughs> think people are judging me. <laughs> so uh, keep that in mind when you listen to my answer, which is I always feel, um, well, you know, I always feel like I'm sort of straddling this impossible chasm, right? Because I do feel sometimes like people who are sort of my more artist friends will judge me for doing a doctorate and will be like, oh, like kind of making fun of me for doing it. And then on the flip side of that, sometimes like in academic settings, you feel like you're not taken as seriously because you're an artist and people are like, artist, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, know. <laughs> so there, you do feel like there is a bit of judgment on both sides. And some people will just sort of put you into a box and be like, okay, but what, what is your thing? Like, are you an academic or are you a writer or whatever? And it's just, that's just the, you know, whenever I sort of get asked a question, like I've been directly asked that question before. Wow. And I hate it. Yeah, and I hate it. And whenever I'm sort of asked anything even remotely close to that, I just like have this sort of gut impulse, like something animal in me is like, like just fight mode, you know, because it's, yeah. it's so, our brains aren't wired like that. Our brains are literally not wired to compartmentalize disciplines and to say, oh no, I am this thing. When you start to do that, you like neurologically are turning yourself off to a spectrum of potential that could happen in the brain power. Okay. Oh it's yeah. True. Humans are so multifaceted. Like we contain multitudes. It's not... Yeah, um, we contain, contain multitudes, Walt Whitman. <laughs> but, and the Bob Dylan song is actually dope. But um, yeah, no, but yeah, that's that's exactly it. And But people people will... And I think it, it's a gendered thing too. And I hate to say that, but definitely. I, I do think I do think it is. Um, just because I, you know, I, I get annoyed because some of my like sort of male colleagues will do will do it be more than one thing and it's like oh my god renaissance man and then for me it's like okay but are you a performer or are you an academic Mm -hmm. it's like what where were these questions with this person or this person or in this situation or in this context you know I don't see them so that's my that's I think it's a gendered thing but maybe other people would disagree I don't know but that that's how I sort of personally have experienced it that's honestly a really frustrating position to be in. What do you think is the impact on your mental health in that way? Mm, well, it fuels imposter syndrome. 
Yeah. You know, because it makes you go, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not a real academic. I'm also not a real artist. I'm neither mm-hmm. of the things that I'm trying to be, except yeah. for, it, it, and not both, neither. <laughs> it's like, I can't be both, but I can't be fully one, but I'm not fully the other either, which means maybe I just suck at everything. That is how that, that's sort of where that goes. Definitely. You know? Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, I, this real artist, what is that? Like, that's, that's such a bullshit thing, but, um, you know, you do feel like there are uh, biases or or the ways that people perceive you in, in one yeah. way or another. So, yeah. Hearing you say um, something about the concept of a real artist really makes me think about the ways in which we as a society have a specific image in our head of what like an artist or a creative is, but... yeah not even sort of just what they're creating, but what they look like, what they think about, what their interests are, what their mental state is. And I- That's a big one. (laughs) Wondering if we could maybe deconstruct that a little bit in terms of how do you think we as, as creatives and academics and just as people can work to deconstruct the notion of what like a quote unquote artist is in terms of their, like everything, what they create, what they look like, what their mental state is. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, (laughs) people who are um, the most sort of, I'm an artist, you're not mentality, I'm a real artist mentality. I mean, that usually just comes from people who are blocked, you know, and who want to feel superior to others. And unfortunately, you do see a lot of that in creative communities, you know, not to sort of hinge on a stereotype, but it's like, because a lot of work is so personal, you will run into situations where you'll find people who are super judgmental, who are, you know, like you'll, rejection is everywhere. Like you'll come across a lot of that. And that's just the way it is, you know, but I think that a good way to sort of try and get your head out of that mind space is I think like when you are sort of actively creating your own stuff and putting yourself out there and learning how to not like be judgmental of yourself, you start to become like increasingly aware of the way that other people are blocking themselves by judging themselves and you so much. Definitely. You know, like I feel like people are like so afraid to whatever, pursue XYZ creative endeavor for fear of judgment and for fear of, you know, not being taken seriously or, you know, XYZ, there are a million anxieties out there revolving around that stuff. Um, But I think a lot of that is like, while of course, yes, there is judgment and you have to learn how to tune that out in certain ways, like, you know, keeping in mind that a lot of that judgment is coming from blocked artists themselves, like block artists block other artists, you know? Definitely. Yeah. But one thing I, one thing I don't subscribe to, uh, and I speak about this a lot, is this sort of tortured artist bull crap, you know, because there's a stereotype that all artists are mentally ill and they have to be mentally ill in order to create work. Um, and then you've got like Hannah Gadsby talking about the Van Gogh thing. Um, but I mean, that is just sort of like the most harmful thing ever because while there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of outspoken people against the tortured artist stereotype. And now that mental health is such a public sphere discussion, like there's been a lot of people coming out and, um, dispelling those stereotypes, but you still do get a lot of people who are sort of like, yeah, but I do produce good work when I'm, when I'm mentally ill, which is such a, which is such a, like, uh, like, you know, and you just want to be like, eat well. Yeah. It really, it says that your work and what you produce is more important than your well-being. Yes. Yeah. That's a huge thing. Huge. The, The way that people, 
um, attempt to think when that's not the case, you know, it's a a stressful one. But the truth is, I mean, the key is that you can like, I mean, not that everything should be geared towards a goal of like being productive or whatever, but it's like, if you feed yourself well, if you take lots of naps, if you are generally healthy to yourself and take a lot of breaks, like not only will you be able to do more in the long run, but you will just be a healthier human being, like a healthier, happier human being. You know, like it's it's learning how to set boundaries for yourself, I think is the big thing. Definitely, definitely. I am wondering to shift gears a little bit. You and I have both talked a little bit already in private spaces about this concept of creatives and internet personas. (laughs) Like the concept of like, I feel like 70 years ago, you could just write a book in your basement and only talk to your editor and your publisher and you could sell that book. But now you kind of have to sell yourself in a way. Yes. Uh, And it's not yourself. You're selling a version of yourself that's brandable. You've turned yourself into a brand and you're selling it, but the product is you. (laughs) And it's like, because people don't just want to buy your book anymore. Publishers want to invest in you as a human being to see if you are marketable, which is is frustrating and it's an odd thing to navigate. And I'm just wondering what what your experience has been with trying to navigate like self-branding and internet personas and sort of how that has affected your mental health and how people have perceived you as a person. Mm. That's a big one. That's a big one because you everything that you said is just 100% right. It's about, it's, you know, it, you have to sell yourself to sell your stuff in a way. And like one of the sort of shticks that I do is is music. And that's sort of at the forefront of my mind right now because I'm getting ready to um, go into studio, record another album soon, which I'm so excited about. Um, but it's like, it is true that sort of putting yourself out there is such a, a, a laborious thing. And that sometimes takes up more energy than like doing the actual thing. It's like, you feel like, you're like, oh, I spent half a day like doing my website so that when I, you know, approach XYZ, I have a portfolio, but then you're like, oh, I could have been spending that day doing what I love and not trying to market what I love, you know? So there's, I I kind of get in a lot of those situations sometimes where I'm sort of like, I feel like this is taking so much unnecessary time. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, I'm one of those people though, who I feel like a lot of people will be like, I hate social media. I don't hate social media. I actually quite like social media. Um, (laughs) Probably because I live alone and it, I feel, I feel like it connects me to the world and I'm introverted. And so it's, you know, I can sit on my couch and see things and I do like it. Like, you know, I am a social media person, but it it, it definitely is uh, funny. Like, my friends always have like sort of my my close friends always sort of make jokes about like internet Camille versus like Camille IRL, especially because like it's kind of weird when you get into situations where where people will be like, oh, like who people who you don't really know, who you only know online will like send you something and be like, oh, this reminds me of you. And you're like, you watch the thing and you're like, it's not me at all. <laughs> I, I feel like I get into those situations sometimes. People sort of perceiving, for me, it's always the um, perceiving me to be more outgoing than I am. That's the biggest one, I think. People think I'm like a lot more social. Uh, and that fuels my social anxiety more <laughs> because I feel like I'm expected to be like a social person. <laughs> Whereas I'm sort of like a bit of a hermit. <laughs> and I own that. I, I, I'm not ashamed of that, but... Um, that is the sort of 
like in terms of like social issues that I get the most kind of uh, from. But I, but I do think, honestly, I do think that I use social media well, even though I do post a lot. Like, I don't think I rely on it. I, I don't obsess over likes. Whereas a lot of people, like they don't even, they won't even post a picture because they think for like eight hours about what the best caption is. Like, I'm not like yeah. that, you know? And I think it's about, I don't think that like using social media is an inherently bad thing. Like some people will like to make it out to be, but I think your relationship to your own social media is what you need to kind of, against it's about setting boundaries for yourself and knowing like what actually is healthy and what is not. Definitely, definitely. I agree with all of that. So this show um, is called I Go to Therapy. And as you know, it's about sort of the intricacies of mental health and creativity and how those things intersect and how they affect Mm -hmm. each other. And my next question for you is about if you have learned anything about your mental health, whether it be through therapy itself or through your just life experience, through your interaction with other people, if you've learned anything specifically about your mental health and mental wellness that has positively impacted um, your life and your creativity specifically, like how having a positive impact on your mental health impacted your creativity. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, first and foremost, the first thing I want to say is if it wasn't for the who knows how many hours of therapy I've been through, like, I don't know, I have no idea who I would be. Like, I have no concept of who that person is because it was like such an important thing for me. I started going in my first year of university. So I think I was like 18, I was going to turn 19. Sorry, my cat is sniffing my butt. I went when I was 19 because I sort of realized that like I was having sort of feelings of anxiety, mostly social that I, that I probably have all, that I definitely always had, but never sort of like dealt with. And then the more I sort of went, the more I was like, oh, I actually have some like really unhealthy habits, most of which revolves around like needing to be perceived a certain way or I'm needing like sort of going the extra mile to have people like, like me or whatever. Like if it was me, it was always about a social thing. And that's probably because growing up I was bullied and all that shit. So that was sort of the the main sort of thing for me. And, And with that came like very incredible episodes of mania and then very, very low episodes. It was always like a teeter totter, you know? And for me, like I was always, because I remember sort of having the first conversation about going on medication. And for me, it was like, that was something I didn't want to do. And the reason was, and this is so messed up. And the reason was, oh, but when I have these high manic episodes, I'm so productive and I'm so creative. If I level out, if I calm myself down, I'm going to lose that, which could not be further from the truth. But that is something I believed. And I think that's something that a lot of creative people believe, regardless of whether or not they voice it. And it took me a, a long, long, long time to realize that a, that a balanced life and learning how to regulate your emotions better, whether that's through medication, through different therapies, whatnot, is like such a game changer, <laughs> not only for creativity, but just like for your sort of personal self. And it's, I mean, it's also interesting, right? Because art making to me was always like 100% release. When I was sort of 18, 19 experimenting for the first time, like making a lot of my own stuff. I never saw it as work, which of course it is. But when I was in my late teens and early 20s, it was a form of like escapism more just like to process things like emotional processing, never work work. And then the more that I became 19, 20, 21, it became work work as I was given more professional opportunities. And I was sort of thrown into this. I never thought I would like, you know, sort of jumpstart a career for myself as a professional artist when I was in school. Like that was never on the cards, never something I thought would happen, but something that naturally happened 
happened based on how much I loved what I was doing and whatever the way that I, the way that I did things. And then when that sort of happened, I, I did feel, and I still feel like, okay, I went from having one kind of full-time gig as a student to now having two full-time gigs. And the thing that I once thought was release and fun has now become work. How do I deal with that? And how do I process that? And for a long time, I didn't want to acknowledge that it had become work and that it was a form of work because it's like play work. But in the last like two years, that's something I really had to sort of reckon with and find ways to A, balance both of those things, both of those worlds, the sort of academia world and creative world, balance them, but also find this third space, which is like the fun space, which has nothing to do with either of those two worlds. And that was the thing that seeing somebody really helped me realize. Also, like, I mean, as somebody who's, I'm quite type A, and I did for a, a very, very long time place all of my worth on productivity. And that's, a, that's definitely an academia thing. It's also definitely like an artist thing. And so learning to see sort of value as a person also came from those sessions. But for me, I think emotion regulation has been the biggest thing that, that therapy has helped me with. General sort of anxiety and like stabilizing my, my mood, which for a long time was very extreme in either direction. And the thing that kind of sticks with me is that one of my therapists told me, and she used a metaphor about playing in traffic. And I remember after one of those sessions, because it was a group session that I was doing, and I never thought I would do a group session, but I actually really liked it. And she, she said, Camille, you play in traffic too much. I'm like, what do you mean play in traffic? And she goes, well, you know, if you are you, imagine there's a highway, there's a bunch of cars going down on the highway, and there's two things you can do. You can either sort of stay on the sidelines of the highway and watch the cars and go, oh, look, there is a Honda, there's a Toyota, there's a, I don't know, brands of cars, um, <laughs> a blue one, a red one, <laughs> a black one. Or you can jump in and, and start playing in traffic. And if the cars are your emotions and you are you through CBT and different sort of like psychological like therapies, whatever, you can learn how to not play in traffic and watch the traffic. And that for me has been my sort of thing is learning how to watch the traffic and not play in the traffic. And it takes, takes a while, it takes a lot, but that is, the, that is the thing that I think about a lot is watching the traffic. That's amazing. That's an amazing metaphor. I love that. I'm totally going to not steal it, but like Google everything about it to see (laughs) where I can cite it from. Um, You mentioned briefly a little while ago about um, this third space, Mm -hmm. this fun space. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that? Yeah, just like, again, because for a long time I saw like I think it's, I think it's th- that difference between art as a hobby and art as a job, you know, and hobby for me was like a fun thing to do. So it's like, you know, at the end of a work day, I'll do an art thing or go to a, or go do a gig or an open mic or do a songwriting session or whatever. Like that was my fun. And, and what I mean by third space is like, if there's sort of three zones that I have to balance in my life, one is the sort of academic stuff. That's zone one. The artistic stuff is zone two. And zone three is like how I relax and don't engage with either of those two. So like for me now, that is like uh, taking long walks or, you know, in the summer when I still lived in London, I was cycling everywhere or that is napping or, uh, you know, that is like reading for fun that has nothing to do with anything that you're doing, you know, or that is, it's just like some sort of break. Reading is not always third space. It depends where it situates in your brain. But yeah, it's just sort of finding like a zone for you to just like literally be a human being and not be tied to the like creative, productive, like need to be productive, need to do stuff that happens in the other two zones. 
Zone three is just like, nothing's happening. Like zone three is like, you can do nothing like Jack, like, and it's great. (laughs) So I'm always trying to figure out what's a part of my zone three. Cooking, cooking is a zone three for me. Some people would consider cooking like a very stressful thing. I don't, for me, it has been therapy. That is my zone three. That's amazing. Please um, send me an invite to zone three. Um, get me going. Honestly, it's funny that you should mention a zone in which your your actions aren't tied to productivity because I don't really know what that is. I'm slowly trying to find it, but I definitely, when I'm reading, I'm like, how can I use what I'm reading to further my brain or to add into my art in some way? Like, I'm always reading and choosing what I'm reading based on how it will impact my art and my work and my brain. And mm. even like I will listen to podcasts while I work at the same time. Like I'm notorious for sort of not even only not having a zone three, but for like doing zone one and two on top of each other. Mm-hmm. I do that <laughs> like, too. It's so I'm guilty of that. Bad. Yeah, I'm guilty of zone overlap. <laughs> Oh yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, I know it it is hard. And and I feel like now that I've sort of like figured out what my zone three is, and it mostly has to do with like reality TV, really bad reality TV. I love it. Oh, I love it. I love the Bachelor franchise. (laughs) But now that I have a zone three, I'm like, how did I ever live without a zone three? Like I need to go to my zone three, you know? And that makes zone one and two better because I've realized now that I'm like, okay, I'm in zone one from, I'm not this like anal with planning out my zones, but let's say like one day I wake up at like nine and I'm in zone one from like 10 to one. And I know that if I get through like whatever, three hours in zone one, then I got the rest of the day in zone three. Oh, that's, oh. (laughs) You know, and I I use that as a thing. I'm like, oh my God. If I, if I get through, and it makes me hyper-focus more too, right? Because I'm yeah. like, okay, in, this morning, I'm going to do this and this for my research assistantship. After that, I'm going to write like five, six more pages of this play that I have a draft due in the mid-February. And then I'm zone three. So that means I can go for a walk and then have a three-hour long bubble bath and then make a meal. Like that's, and I use my zone three as my sort of like, oh, I can do, you know, and it makes me yeah. focus more when I'm in the other zones. Because I don't know how you are, but I'm like focus-wise, I'm very like 12 places at once. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Something I deal with a lot is when I find zone three, I have intense zone three guilt. So I can't enjoy what I'm doing in zone three. I can't enjoy taking a bath, going for a walk, writing in my journal, like writing bad stuff, like just art that sucks. Yeah. We love art that sucks. We love art that sucks. Art has to suck before it's good. Always. Art has to suck. it, it has to suck and that's okay. But it's, I'm always kind of plagued with this. If I take a moment to play a video game, watch a movie, do something that's for me rather than for like productivity, I'll sort of, I almost won't enjoy it because I'll feel guilty Mm. for spending time doing that, that I could be putting towards like working on my book, like working on work and things like that. Like, even if logically I know that I don't need to do that. I've put in enough time on those things. So how do you sort of combat the guilt associated with doing things for yourself? So it's so funny because like my sort of ability to go into zone three, I love this zone language. I've never used it. I love it. But it makes sense, right? Um, My ability to sort of stick to zone three literally came with COVID. Like I I did not have any sense of a zone three before the pandemic. And it's because 
in March when I was, I was still living in the UK at that point when everything shut down. So right before, you know, the first sort of like big lockdown happened, I concussed myself. I got, I got a concussion. It was bad news. <laughs> it was bad. Uh, I'm, I'm fine now though. And, uh, I couldn't do anything for like four weeks, like nothing, like sit in a dark room. Like that was, that was the situation. And the only sort of thing that I, like I, and I was taken away from any sort of you know, I, I can't work. I can't really write. I can't look at a screen for too long. Like there's literally nothing I can do. And in that four weeks, when I was not sort of just like lying in bed, I would get a bunch of food delivered to my home and I would just sort of like cook myself these like very extra breakfasts because that's all I could do for myself, like literally yeah. it. And then I kind of got to a point where I was feeling a bit better. And I'm like, man, like that felt so good. It's rocks. But that is rocks. And I and I remember I was saying to like, I think it was one of my best friends, I was like, you know what's awesome? I made myself a big breakfast and I did nothing to deserve it. And then I thought, and then I was like, when I said that, I'm like, that is so messed up that I have that perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I only deserve a big breakfast if I worked really hard yesterday, or mm-hmm. if I know I'm gonna work really hard today, or whatever. And this sort of thinking around food comes from my history with disordered eating. I recognize that, you know, I was in therapy for that in third year uni for um, for a while because that was not a pleasant experience. But I, I sort of had this like productivity mentality in relation to food. And it's like food is not something that I should just be, I should, should just be like making myself nice meals because I can. No, because I deserve it because I worked hard. And for me, that was the sort of thing that that clicked in my head during quarantine where I was sort of like, no, I'm just going to, I'm just going to like become a master chef and just make myself good food just because I don't des- deserve it. But it's just, I mean, it, it just feels good to do something nice for myself. And it, and it was a, a pr- that practicing of self-compassion that really helped me, you know, because it's just like, I'm doing something nice for myself and I didn't even, I didn't even deserve it, you know? And I feel like on, on those days where, cause we all have those days where we just can't work, like nothing's getting done. The brain is too full. It's just not happening. I feel like when I used to experience those days, I used to be like, oh, I'm such a piece of shit. Like, why can't I do this? And I'm like, oh, I suck. I suck. I suck. I suck. I suck. I used to just get so down. And now when I have those days, I'm kind of like, okay, so that's not happening today. We're just going to take a full day and I'm just going to do what I want and go for a nice walk and take a nice long bath and spend two hours cooking a meal. And then the next day I'll feel better. And I always do. It's, it's that sort of thing of like, of, of being nice to yourself first, not after the fact, you know, like being nice to yourself so you can be a human being and not being nice to yourself because you did a good thing. Yay. Productivity and cooking has really been a, a way that I, that I've seen the light on that one. And I think again, like, I think it's because it's like tied to my like eating disorder recovery too, but it's been in that way, very therapeutic as well. Cause it's like, yeah, look at me. I'm, I'm better now. Woo-hoo. That's perfect. That's so nurturing. That's so taking care of your body as you would take care of someone that you deeply loved. Like that's so important mm-hmm. to do that. Yes. Yeah. It's like taking care of someone that who you deeply love. Yeah. That's a huge, that's mm-hmm. a huge one. Um, do you have anything you would like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, I think like, the thing that I sort of haven't said that I want to say is that, you know, I feel like I've been very positive on this podcast uh, because that's the space I'm in currently. If you would have <laughs> invited me on this podcast two years ago, I would have been like, 
hi, I'm Camille Linson. I'm a multidisciplinary artist and this is a cry for help. Like <laughs> it wouldn't have been like, it wouldn't have been like, you know, these are the things that worked. But I, you know, I think that sometimes there's a shame in saying, oh, like I, I would not be where I am without therapy, like intense therapy, like three times yeah. a week therapy, like what, you know, solo group eating, you know, all that stuff. But I'm one of those people who like, I'm kind of shameless about admitting that that is the reason I am who I am now. And, you know, it, 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 it has taken a while and I've, you know, sometimes gone to therapists that I really didn't like and had to find a new one. And that sometimes can feel depleting if you're trying and somebody that you're working with just like isn't sort of sticking with you. But I don't know, I, I, I feel um, the mental space that I'm in now, like I, I wouldn't be where I am, who I am, whatever, without without like taking care of myself first and finding ways to do that. And the only way I've been able to do that is because I've sought like professional help. And there's no shame in that. I think a lot of people have shame in that. And you know, my dad's dog is barking very loudly in the back. No problem. Yeah. And that's a cheesy, it's a hallmark thing to say, but it is true. Definitely. I completely agree with all of that. We are going to go on to our final question, but before our final question, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the show, to have a wonderful conversation with me, oh, uh, just you. to just talk about all things creativity and mental health and art. And um, I hope I didn't sound like a knob. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Where can people find you first before our final question? Where on the internet um, can people find you and your work? Cool. You can find me most places. Uh, <laughs> my social media handle is just my full name, which is at C A M I L L E I N T S O N. My website is camilleinson.com. And if you have Spotify or Apple Music or any other music streaming service, I can be found at Cami, which is C A M I E, doing my depressing ass folk music. So. Which, by the way, um, is some of my favorite music ever, proven by my Spotify Wrapped for the last two years. Um, several <laughs> Cami songs always being in the top five, and of those streams, like I am, I am a lot of them. Sometimes I just put uh, Sharp Teeth on repeat and just listen to it like oh, all the time. So wait till the you know new what? one. You wait know, till the I'm, new one. I'm very, very incredibly excited. I'm so. so Last question. Um, if you had no limitations at all, money, burdens, time, fear, what would you be creating right now? Nothing. I'd be taking a freaking nap. <laughs> no, like that's, no. that's an honest answer. That's an honest answer. Yeah. Like if I could, because I'm very, uh, very tired. Um, yeah. very burned out. <laughs> uh, I've been experiencing very severe burnout this winter. So if I, if I like didn't have to work for a bit and I could just sort of like be a potato, that would be great. But if I had no limitations, what would I be creating? I would do my next record with a 50-piece string orchestra. And I would probably just like read a lot of books. That's what I kind of wish I had time for, but I feel like I'm always I doing work. It. If I had no limitations, what would I be? I can go bigger than that. Come on, Camille. I, I, I have a draft of a, a play about VR sex that I really want to finish. I love mm -hmm. this play, but that was... I love this play. <laughs> yeah, it was pushed to the side because of another thing I can't talk about yet. Mm -hmm. um, ooh, so I would finish that. And uh, I would love to... So if I had no limitations, honestly, like I would love to create an actual VR thing. Like I would like yeah. to just teach like the experts in the world to to help me design a like VR experience that's sort of like a play with the, whoever's wearing the goggles as the protagonist. I don't know how that would happen, 
but in my brain, it can. Uh, if I had no money, burdens, time, or fear, if I had no fear, I'd be writing a lot more poetry than I am. Um, yeah. I'm not doing that much because I am a coward. And I would also create, um, I would make a really large, if I had any construction ability, I would make like a ginormous, huge castle for my cat, which is not a, an art related creativity thing, but I would just make like the most, like a castle looking thing for my cat because his name is Leo and um, he's my whole like life right now. He's my zone three also. Just being with him is my zone three. to Therapy is hosted by Sydney Warner Bruman and produced by Christian Heckley. Original music and sound mixing by Christian Heckley. You can find us on igototherapypodcast.simplecast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. It would rock our world, and that's not an understatement. We love you. Thank you. See you next time.